And we want to go before the Lord before we get started this morning in our worship and our praise. Would you bow before him? Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us. Thank you for this Thanksgiving season that you have allowed us to take part in, Lord. Um, and let us all realize that, the most, uh, that we are most thankful for you and your son. And we're here to worship you today, God. We're here to give you praise and to exalt you among all the earth. And so, Father, we pray that you would touch our hearts today, that you would not let today be about us, that it would all be about you and your glory. We give you thanks. We give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we continue to praise him this morning, as we continue to worship him, uh, as we continue to uh, thank him for his wonderful deeds. This particular song we do every year uh, around this time, and it's simply called, I Give Thanks. For the first morning light, for the birds when they fly, for the clouds when they hang up so high in the sky, for your glory I see in a sweet baby smile, I give thanks. For those times when I've laughed with my family and friends For the times when I've cried since your spirit again For your love that I find when your praises I see I give thanks, I give thanks Aren't you thankful today? For my clothes and my bed, a roof over my head, and a piping hot meal when our table is set. For a walk on the beach where your beauty is seen, I give thanks. For the sound of the saints when they all join in. And proclaim you are God, the forgiver of sin. For this hope in my heart that forever I'm yours. I give thanks. I give thanks. Just sing it out to him. I give thanks. I give thanks to you. I give thanks, oh breath that I breathe for my eyes that can see beaming sunsets and stars mountains valleys and trees for the years that you've shown only kindness to me I give thanks for the stripes that you bore so that I could be healed for the crown that you wore so that I could be free for your blood that you shed, given freely for me, I give thanks, I give thanks. 
For the stripes that you bore. I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks. Would you sing it out again? I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks. I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks, I give thanks. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to this gathering of the Edgewood Baptist Church. Let me run through a few announcements before we settle into the, uh, to the service for the duration. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving and that all of the, uh, what's, what's the stuff in the turkey? MSG? No, it's not MSG. <laughs> Tryptophan, that's it tryptophan right all the tryptophan is worn off all right if you start to nod off or doze off during the service we will notice just so you know and we will make notes we have eyes in the sky always watching Uh, but good to have you here uh, especially if you are here as a guest or as a visitor and if you are if um, if uh, you'll take the time to notice you should have on on the back of the pew in front of you there should be a visitor card there Uh, If you are visiting with us or new to the area or dropping in just to see what all of this is about, uh, you can pull that card out. You can write your name, uh, give us an email address or a cell number. We won't harass you or anything like that. Um, We just like to know that you were here, and especially if there's an opportunity for us to be able to to serve you in any way or to pray for you or minister to you. And uh, having said that, what you can do with that card is on your way out. In the, uh, in the aisles here at the end are uh, our offering boxes. You can just simply drop it in an offering box and we'll collect it at the end of the service. Um, but if you would do that for us, that would be great. We would very much appreciate it. Um, parents, keep in mind, uh, we do have for babies up through two-year-olds, we've got the nursery downstairs. Also, if you have uh, young children in here who are older than two, so that would be obviously you math wizards three and up, Um, If they start to get a little squirmy or out of hand, uh, one, we're okay with squirming, like we we can deal with that, all right? But if if they start making noises or they are making you feel uncomfortable for any reason, if you go out into the vestibule, one of our our safety team members there, our greeters, can direct you across the the way to a live stream feed in another room um, just across from the sanctuary here. So just wanted to make you aware of the fact that that's available if you need it. 
Okay, and uh, announcements. Uh, one, uh, just keep in mind that now that we're coming off of the, uh, the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, the church offices will be open again starting tomorrow. We'll be getting back to our regular schedule, on, uh, particularly on our uh, midweek uh, gatherings on Wednesday with a prayer meeting, uh, men's Bible study. I think the women's Bible study is off until the new year. Um, but our regular scheduled activities will be up and running. Uh, second, and you need to take special note of this, on Sunday, December 13th, Sunday, December 13th at 6 p.m. in the Education Center, which is a a floor below us, we're going to have a member meeting, uh, December 13th at 6 p.m. What's what's the date on that? December 13th, good, okay. December 13th at 6 o'clock, member meeting to do two things. One, uh, the budget for 2021 will be presented at that time, an overview along with uh, a printout if you wanted to see uh, specific numbers. Because the following Sunday, which will be December 20th, we'll take um, the vote of affirmation or an, uh, an affirmation from the church body to carry that 2021 budget proposal forward and to make it the actual budget for the, for the upcoming year. So you have the opportunity as members to see and hear what that budget looks like uh, a week ahead of time before we would ask for the church to affirm that budget for us to be able to operate in the next year, that's December 13th. And also that same night, uh, the, after the budget presentation, which will be f- uh, pretty concise and to the point, uh, the elders would like to have an opportunity to be able to speak to uh, any of the members who gather at that time uh, to, speak to, uh, to speak to you about this transition period that we're in and the process that, uh, that they are uh, are mulling over and thinking about in terms of moving from um, moving towards a senior pastor in place or a lead pastor. Uh, so that would be a good opportunity. You'll have the, um, the chance in that time uh, to be able to, um, to mention anything that has been maybe burning on your heart and mind uh, to the elders that are there. You'll also have an opportunity to hear from them in terms of uh, where they are in their, uh, in their thinking and uh, as they've been praying. And we trust it will be a good opportunity just to continue to keep channels of communication open so that everyone is, uh, is aware and in the know, so to speak, about uh, what's happening. Um, a couple of those meetings have already been had. I know with the deacons, I think uh, later on this week, maybe uh, some, uh, there's going to be a group of senior adults getting together to do that same thing. But uh, this will be a, a third forum, so to speak, um, for uh, any member um, here at Edgewood to be able to sit in on that and to be able to share and listen uh, to what's going on and just to have a, a, an idea as to where we are right now in that process. So that's December 13th, 6 p.m. in the Education Center, budget presentation, and then an update on the uh, transition process that we're in right now as we're looking towards... Uh, getting a lead pastor. Uh, I think, yes, I think that is it. So let's do this. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Psalm 138. <clears throat> it's uh, one of many Thanksgiving Psalms in the Old Testament. And what I'd like to do is just simply read straight through this psalm without making any comments, just to give us 
In light of uh, coming off of the Thanksgiving weekend and holiday, uh, keeping us mindful of just many of the different angles or realities that exist uh, that fuel us with opportunities to be thankful to the Lord for who He is and what He's done. And then after we read Psalm 138, we'll go into uh, a moment of silence so that you have an opportunity to reflect on the passage that we've just read. Perhaps you want to take those moments to continue to express your gratitude and your thanksgiving to the Lord uh, for what He's done and uh, especially what He's done for you through the work of Christ and His Holy Spirit. Uh, You may want to use that time uh, to repent of the fact that you have not been thankful in the way that you are, that you have have taken lightly uh, the riches of his blessings that he has poured out on you and on us. Uh, Or there may be any number of other things that you want to bring before the Lord to settle your mind and your heart as we continue to go through the service, singing his praises, and then later listening again to his word being spoken over us. So, I'll read Psalm 138, and then we'll bow for a moment of silence, and then I will conclude that time with prayer before we continue with more singing. So, Psalm 138, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version in case it sounds a little bit different from yours. A Psalm of David. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he considers the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Bow with me. Father, how dull our hearts are and how dim our vision that we do not think or reflect on the magnitude of your gifts to us, the vastness of them. If we were to try to write them down or record all of the things that you have done for us, we would run out of ink, we would run out of paper. The world cannot contain all of the good things that you have done and your faithfulness 
from one generation to the next. And so, Father, we come and we acknowledge that one of the things that we need to repent of daily is the low regard that we have for your goodness and your mercy. For actually having the pride and the self-centeredness to think that your goodness can be defined by what we expect and what we demand, rather than trusting that in your wisdom and in your goodness, you give to us all that we need and more for your glory and our joy. Help us, Father, in the midst of this world that is broken, to continue to set our minds on the things above, to recognize that while there will be times in which our creaturely appetites are not necessarily satisfied the way that we would like, that we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that we are looking forward to a day when all of this brokenness and all of the deficiencies that we see around us will be corrected and healed and made right. We thank you that you are good and merciful even when you discipline your people. As we turn now to sing, we ask that the truth that we find in Scripture would be reflected in the songs that we sing, that we would sing with joy and gratitude, and that as we continue to listen to your word in the reading of Scripture, that we would be encouraged where we find ourselves hopeless, that we would be convicted where we find ourselves too comfortable. We thank you that you're faithful, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand again as we continue into our worship. And as you're standing, I just want to read another psalm to you in Psalm chapter uh, 9, the first two verses. It says, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all the marvelous things you have done. I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Let us continue to praise his name. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree His body bound and drenched in tears They laid him down in Joseph's tomb The entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all alone Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we will sing Your praise. Oh, Lord, 
And on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roared for Christ the King. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise Let's hear you this morning. Would you sing it out to him? sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus face in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 speaks of behold he is coming with the cloud, every eye will see him, and all the earth will mourn over him, but we'll also be praising him, amen, as he comes back riding on the white stallion, as he comes back to take his believers home with him, amen. Let's continue to praise his holy name. Ah! 
This last verse when ransom and with a ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me how marvelous how wonderful and song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful and my song shall seated. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, not Exodus 3, which is apparently where I was. Genesis 3, we're going to pick up at verse 8, and we're going to read through the rest of the chapter, so 3, 8 through 24, we'll pray, and then we'll discuss. Genesis 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Listen, by the way, as we continue to read. 
Sorry, I should have said this up front. So this is a do-over, okay? We'll go back to 3.8. Listen as we read. Uh, most of the time, and rightly so, we give attention to God's judgment and the curse that he brings about because of sin. We're going to talk about that. But I also want you to consider, as we're reading through here, listen and think and reflect on where are there signs of God's mercy and goodness even as he comes to judge? Is it possible for God to be merciful even when he judges. So, Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth your children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore... The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we need you to give us a right understanding, not only of what this passage has to say about the damage that sin and the curse has brought into your world, but also to understand and to see ourselves in this passage. Keep us, Father, from trying to distance ourselves 
from the sin and the guilt of our forefathers. Help us also, Father, to see that you remain the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that the character and your work and your ways revealed in Genesis 3 is something of the character and your work and your ways that we can see even today. So give us hope and encouragement. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis 1, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-good God brought all that exists into being. Everything that He brought into being was good. He made it good. On top of the good creation that He brought into existence, God in His goodness pronounced a blessing over His creation and over uniquely His image bearers so that not only would this creation grow and thrive, but they would have the capacity to continue to flourish under His watchful eye and under His his rule. The goodness of God in Genesis 2 is demonstrated or is revealed further by the fact that God does not merely create and then remain distant, but in a very personal, relational way, enters into over and over and over again relationship, dynamic interaction with the man and the woman in one sense or in one way by giving them meaningful work. They have the opportunity as His image bearers to imitate His work in creation so that they have another point of contact or another point of connection by which they can come to know and enjoy fellowship with their Creator. The goodness of God is demonstrated again when God reveals to Adam what he already knows, which is that it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs a helper to walk with him through life to do this meaningful, fulfilling work that God has placed before him. And so God, in his goodness, creates for Adam a woman named here in chapter 3, Eve, who will be a perfect fit, a good match for him, so that as they work together, they can not only work in service to their king, but they can enjoy mutual fulfillment together. And all of this is done with man and woman reflecting and bearing the image of God in a state of complete innocence, bliss and enjoyment, no fear, no shame, no concerns. Chapter 3, which we looked at last week, a tempter enters into the garden and essentially calls into question the character of God and causes Eve to doubt whether or not God is, in fact, the good, gracious, giving God that He has revealed Himself to be. And through that temptation and deception, the man and the woman, rather than being satisfied and content with all of the many gifts and blessings that God has given them, reaches out to grasp and try to take what the Lord has not given them, tries to establish themselves in a position where they now can be their own gods, where they can determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. And as soon as they do that, their eyes are open. They are ashamed, 
and they, in futility, try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And that brings us to verse 8, where we pick up this morning. Now, what I want to do for, for most of our time, I want to look at what we see about the nature and character of God in His interaction with Adam and Eve after they have disobeyed and rebelled. Because when we say that the Scriptures are revelation, we mean that in two ways. One, that it is revelation from God, that that He's given it to us, He's revealed this truth to us, but it's also revelation about God, that we don't get the Scriptures handed to us in this written form so that we have an interesting history lesson or so that we can know um, questions that we may have about the way that creation works or about human nature, but this is revelation from God about God. God is revealing Himself to us so that we can know Him, so that even in Genesis 3, if all that we do is read here to try to make sense out of why is it that on the one hand this creation is so beautiful and there are so many things to enjoy, why is there still so much pain and sorrow and suffering and death? Right? Genesis 3 answers that, but if that's all that we see and we don't actually see more clearly God Himself, then to a certain extent we're missing one of the major reasons that we have this passage to begin with. So we're going to get to that in just a second. Genesis 3, 8 through 24 is packed with stuff, and at the risk of passing too quickly over some important information or things that are valuable for us to know, I'm going to sort of put the sermon proper on pause and draw your attention to a couple things that we're not going to have time to discuss further. All right, And what I want to do is draw your attention specifically to the curses that God gives, starting in verse 14 all the way down through 19. Let me just point out two things that, that I'll mention here. I would encourage you to continue to reflect and, and read and reflect some more on it before we go to God's interaction with these rebels in the garden. Number one... Um, consider the nature of the curses that God pronounces, particularly on the man and the woman, are uniquely fitted to their design and the role that they play in creation. The curses that God gives to man and woman are uniquely fitted, if we can say it that way, to the role, to their design, and the role that they play in creation. So, for example, we point out the fact, or we would point out the fact, that when God speaks to the woman, it's interesting to note that the curse, or curses, that are cited for the woman deal with things that are uniquely feminine, if we can say it that way, right? Childbearing. Men don't do childbearing right? Shocker. The curse for childbearing is applied to a woman. The curse about the relationship that the woman has with the man, her husband, is uniquely fitted to the role that she plays. Similarly, when it gets to the man, the curse that God pronounces on the man and on the ground is uniquely fitted or reflects the role that he plays to go out and to work the ground, to exercise dominion over it. 
All right, in saying that then, we also want to come back very quickly and say we need to distinguish between the curses and what the curses fall on. So let me go back again to the woman and point out the curse that God pronounces on childbearing. Is, is childbearing a curse? No. Right? Well, on most days, no, right? Sometimes you look at your kids and think, I'm not so sure. No, I'm just kidding. No, childbearing is not a curse. Rather, the curse is the fact that what God has given to the woman as a good and gracious gift, as a good function, as an important role for her to play, rather than that role being nothing but blessing and enjoyment and fulfillment, now a curse comes in and makes it painful and troublesome and even, in some cases, dangerous. It's not childbearing that's the curse, it's the pain that now accompanies childbearing. Similarly, when in verse uh, 16, God says that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The curse is not that men and women are different or that men have been given a unique role in the way that they relate to women and women in the way that they relate to men. The fact that God in chapter 2 created Adam first and gave him the responsibility to lead and created Eve to come alongside of him, to walk with him, and to work with him, that is not a curse. That is a good thing. The curse comes in when what God has created and made now is going to be filled with trouble and conflict and pain and sorrow and suffering. So rather than the woman being content and happy to walk with her husband, participating in this joint operation together, she will desire, according to the passage here, I think what's being said is she will desire to overtake her husband. The husband, in response to that, can either back off and basically say, yeah, okay, have it. I'll acquiesce, I'll abdicate my role, or... He can view his wife as a threat, and he can try to put down the rebellion in his home. You see how that works? That's not good. That's not the way that marriage is supposed to work. Marriage is not a curse. A curse has been brought to marriage, and there's a big difference between those two statements. That needs to be recognized, and that needs to be understood. The second thing that we want to point out here briefly before we continue on is the statement that's made in 3.15, where God, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. At this point in Genesis, one of the driving themes that is going to recur over and over and over again, it simply works down to something like this. From the beginning, God created a world and created image bearers who were meant to enjoy His blessing. Because of sin, a curse has now invaded this blessed creation. How will blessing make rid of the curse? 
And one of the ways that the curse is going to manifest itself through conflict is that from this point on, all of humanity can be divided into two camps. In 3.15, can be divided between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right? 3.15 is not given to us to explain why it is that women don't like snakes. That's not the point. This passage is not given to us to explain why it is that snakes crawl around on the ground. 3.15 goes as a way to say this curse is going to be borne by all of humanity and it is going to work itself out or be demonstrated in this way. There will be two lines, a godly line and an ungodly line, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And somehow, some way, we're not told how in this passage, it's going to be from the seed of the woman that a solution to this problem will come. In and of itself, that's fascinating, that the very people who wrecked God's creation will be the means by which God makes His creation right again. Even that is a sign of God's mercy and goodness. But just to show you that this is not just unique to Genesis, let me take you to two passages in the New Testament before we shift gears. Go to John chapter 8, verse 43. Look at what Jesus says in John 8, 43 and 44. And see if you don't hear something of Genesis 3, seed of the woman and seed of the serpent going on here. Gen, uh, John 8, 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You are of your father the devil. Is Jesus saying that even though you look human, you're actually a demon in disguise? Or is Jesus drawing on Genesis language to say, the fact that you oppose me is evidence of the fact that you are not of godly descent. You are of demonic, satanic descent. Two lines. You are either of a godly line or an ungodly line. And then 1 John chapter 3 is the second one where it becomes, if possible, even more explicit. First John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Do you hear that? John, in this letter, actually goes and draws on the seed language from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. God, through His Son, has come to destroy the works of the serpent, and those who are 
of the godly line have his seed abiding in him. Listen, the reason that we point this out is because it is always good to remind ourselves that there is, as far as God is concerned, there is no middle ground in terms of where humanity stands. You are either in Christ, you either have God's seed abiding in you, you are of him, or you are of the devil. You do not get to choose to take a middle path. Well, I'd like to be the good little bad little boy. Give me a little bit of goodness, enough that I can be respected, but also a little bit of badness so that I can kind of do my own thing. That's not the way that it works. And what I would encourage you to consider as we now go through the rest of this passage in Genesis 3 is to think along those lines and to consider that as you see the way that God reveals Himself and makes Himself known in His interaction with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, consider the way that they respond to the Lord and say, do those kinds of actions typify godliness or ungodliness? Does it typify what it means to know the Lord or not to know Him? And then further, the big question is, do those actions typify me? Do these responses give evidence to the fact that I am of a godly descent or if, in fact, I am of an ungodly descent? Back to Genesis 3. Even in judgment, God is merciful and good. Let me give you the three points that I'm going to try to drive home in case I don't get to it or don't think to enumerate it as we go along. Number one, God seeks us out even as we hide. God seeks us out even as we hide. Number two, God draws us to confess even though we deflect. God seeks us out even though we hide. God draws us to confess, draws us out to confess even as we deflect. And then number three, God promises and provides all that we need, or you might say what we truly need. God seeks us out even as we hide. God draws us out to confess even as we deflect, and God promises and provides all that we need. I'm working off of the understanding that when God approaches Adam and Eve, He knows full well what has happened. God is not ignorant of the fact that Adam and Eve have taken and eaten the fruit that He commanded them not to eat. Stop and think about that for a minute. God knows what we read about last week in 3, 1 through 7. God knows that they have bought into a lie. They have defamed His character by doubting that He is truly good and generous and giving. God knows 
that they are not satisfied to let him be the ultimate king and ruler, but that they want to take God's place and rule themselves. And God also knows that doubting and denying His goodness, that desiring to be their own gods, they have also entered into an act of knowing rebellion and have thrown God to the side and His Word to the side to eat of this fruit, to make of themselves something that they could never become. God knows all of this. How will God approach His people? Let me ask you this way. Let me ask it this way. If you were in God's place, how would you approach these two in the garden? I won't put it on you. Let me tell you what I would do. I would see what had happened. And if I did not snuff them out of existence instantly, I would say it's time to storm the garden. And if I were God... I would come in full fury and wrath with the ground shaking, thunder shaking the trees, lightning, fire, right? I would come in that way and I would be booming a voice that is deafening, asking, demanding answers from the man and the woman, these rebels who deserve nothing but death. That's what I would do. Does God storm the garden? No. Instead, we're told in in verse 8 that they hear not distant thunder, not an ominous booming voice. They hear the sound, the the wind, the, the moving, the rustling. They hear the sound of God walking in the garden. And even then, walking through the garden rather than storming the garden, how do the man and the woman respond? How do they react? They flee and they hide. This is the nature of sin. This is the nature of shame. You need to understand, we need to understand that our problem with God is not that God is not kind enough or gentle enough, not that He is not merciful enough, not that He is not righteous enough, not that He needs to know and understand a little bit more. God can come as gently and as humbly and as softly as possible, and yet sin and our guilt and shame will always drive us to flee and hide from the presence of a holy creator and king. Always. So one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, when I have the opportunity or when I know that God is trying to approach me, if we can say it that way, How do I I tend to respond? If I know that God is approaching, do I then close that distance so that I also approach? Or does His imminent presence drive me away to hide? And if it drives me away to hide, 
or to avoid or escape. Why? And don't think that this what's going on in Genesis 3 is something that's just unique to them. Like, oh, these, these poor prehistoric people trying to hide in the trees and the bushes from God with these leaves around them. Right? That, that's human nature. That's what the shame of sin does. It drives us to hide from God because we cannot bear to be exposed. We don't hide from, we don't hide from God in the trees necessarily. We're far more sophisticated. We hide from God through technology. One way. I mean, there are many ways, right? The minute God starts to bear in on my thoughts, I've got something in my pocket that can take care of that. Start scrolling through. Let's see what's on Facebook. Let's see what's happening on Twitter, Instagram. The minute I have a quiet thought or I'm left alone with my thoughts and God begins to press in for any reason, I can avoid that. I've got Netflix. I've got Amazon Prime. I've got Disney Plus. I've got shows to stream. I've got to catch up on these things. Or... I find ways to hide from God because I know that in a unique sort of way, God's presence is known and is manifested when His people gather together, right? Where two or three are gathered, there I am also in your presence. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. There's a, there's a unique way in which the presence of God is known when His people gather together. Thank goodness there's corona. I don't have to come to church. All right, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. I'm not denying health risks or anything like that. I'm just recognizing in my own soul that I can latch on to any kind of excuse to avoid God when I do not want to meet Him or when I do not want to be confronted by His truth being revealed through His people. It doesn't have to be a pandemic. A pandemic may be a convenient excuse for me, but it could be any number of other things. It's just as easy to avoid God by avoiding His Word. In 1 Samuel, one of the stunning statements that's made in the Old Testament is that when God began to reveal Himself to Samuel, when God began to appear again to His people, 1 Samuel says that He appeared by His Word. We encounter the presence of God when we go to His Word. And so if that's the case, if I want to hide from the presence of God, one of the ways that I'm going to do that, one of the ways I'm going to hide and avoid is I'm just not going to pick up the book. I'm certainly not going to pray and come into the throne room. Right? This is the very first response 
to the presence of God by our forefathers because of sin and the shame that it brings. And it has been the response of humanity from that point to the present day. Why hide? Adam says why, right? We were afraid. Listen to this verse from 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. John says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. The one who fears is not perfected in love. Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe one of the reasons that you fear the presence of God or find fear driving you when God would confront you is because you don't know Him or love Him the way that you thought you did? If you were perfected in love, if I were perfected in love, I would not need to fear a holy God. There would be a healthy fear and respect. I would not take God lightly, but I would not need to hide from Him. My judge has become my father, and I no longer need to hide. It is unbelievably merciful for God to approach sinful, rebellious people when He knows full well what they have done better than they do, and to actually approach them as they hide, as they run, as they flee, and offer to bring them to Himself rather than to annihilate them on the spot. Unbelievable mercy. Have you experienced that mercy? You, you know if you have, right? Because what you begin to understand is it's not that my sin goes away. I sin every day. Rather, I know that my sin has been accounted for and it's been paid for and the debt has been paid and satisfied. Therefore, when I do approach God, I do not need to flee from Him and hide because I fear His anger and His wrath. I can go timidly, I can go sheepishly, I can go with shame and embarrassment to an extent, but as a child going to a father to say, I'm sorry that I've done this. Number two, God sought or seeks out His people even though His people would rather flee and hide. Number two, God draws His people out to confess even though confession is the last thing that they want to do. So God goes into the garden, walks in there, calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam responds in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What, what's the correct answer? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I did it. 
What's the answer that we get? We get, in verse 12, the woman that you gave me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. This is not accidental. The woman, Adam, did you eat from the tree? The woman that you, no, 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 Adam, did you eat from the tree? Nope, you're not listening, God. The woman that you gave to me, she gave me this fruit, and yeah, I guess at the end I, I did eat. Again, is God asking the question because he doesn't know what Adam has done? Or is even this interaction with Adam a reflection of his benevolent, fatherly heart that goes to the child knowing full well the mess that they have made and wants to give them an opportunity to confess it so that things can be reconciled and made right? Interestingly enough, when Adam gives his pitiful answer, he doesn't argue with Adam on the spot, but he turns to the woman and asks her, what about you? What is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. What, what does it sound like? when you confess your sin? What does it sound like when you confess your sin before the Lord? What does it sound like when you confess your sin to your brother and sister or your spouse? Is, is there a preface before the confession? Well, you know, I was having just a, a really bad day. And then on top of that rotten day, you came in and you said this, and it wasn't just that you said this, but you said it this way, and so I'm sorry that I, I yelled at you. Your confession sound like that too, right? Not just me? <laughs> what, what do your confessions sound like? Does it sound like this, where you're deflecting, trying to minimize your sin and your guilt trying to shove someone else in front of you, throw someone else under the bus, or is your confession more along the lines of a Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right when you speak and righteous when you judge? One of the reasons that we are so slow to confess is because our lack of confession is itself a revelation of how little we know God. Listen to these verses. Exodus 34, verse 6, listen to how God describes Himself. This, by the way, is how God describes Himself in the aftermath of the golden calf episode by the Israelites at Sinai. Moses wants to see or hear a guarantee that God is going to remain with these sinful, rebellious 
responsibility-denying people. And in part, God goes on to reveal Himself to Moses this way. This is the kind of God He is, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and He will have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon, not grudgingly, not partially, He will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you hear that? The reason that I don't confess more readily is because when I think of God, I make Him too much like me. And he's not like me. Praise God, he's not like me. If you knew God for who he is, if you knew him to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, if you knew that he would abundantly pardon and that his forgiveness and grace is so big that it defies a logical explanation, wouldn't you be more ready to confess if you knew that was what was waiting for you? Abundant pardon? A God who is slow to anger, who will remain faithful to you even though you are faithless and unfaithful to Him? And then Paul says it this way in Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Listen, people, when God confronts us in our sin, that is an act of kindness. Our dilemma, our problem is that we buy into the lies of the enemy, we make God or envision God to be like us, and we think that God approaching us to confront us in our sin, to lead us to repentance and confession, we think that He is doing that so that He can pummel us. And that's not why He's doing it. Do you know why we know that He is not approaching us in our sin, drawing us to confession and repentance so that He can pound us? Because Christ has already taken the pounding for us. And if I know that that anger and wrath and justice, that pounding that I deserve has already been satisfied and absorbed to the fullest extent, 
then when God comes to me and begins to put his finger on areas in my life that says, this is wrong, this is sin, this is evil, this is wicked, I do not need to run from that. I need to run to him. He is giving me, in his patience and in his mercy, the privileged opportunity to confess and repent so that I would come to know him in his mercy and in his goodness. If you and I are not willing to confess, or if our confessions are like what we see here in Genesis 3, where it's more or less dissembling and deflecting and minimizing our own sin, our own sin, responsibility, it may be because one of the things lurking in our heart is an inaccurate view of who God is. We don't truly know Him the way that we think we do. Because to know God more and to know Him in the fullness of His grace and mercy is to find motivation to run and confess over and over and over again. He's never going to run out of mercy. He's never going to run out of forgiveness. Every morning, He's got a new storehouse of mercies to pour out on you, which is a good thing because every morning, you need a new storehouse. Number three, God's seeking out those who would hide from Him, who would rather avoid Him altogether. God draws out to confession these people who do not want to admit their own guilt and shame. And number three, God promises and provides for these hiding, deflecting rebels what they cannot provide for themselves. This comes out in two ways. It comes out in the fact that God makes a promise in 315 and it's also demonstrated in the provision that he makes for them towards the end of the chapter. We have, as we see with Adam and Eve, we have tremendous power and ability to offend God. We are powerless to make that right. That's a bad place to be to have all kinds of power and ability to offend God and yet not to have any ability to make it right. That's what you see going on here with Adam and Eve. They have the ability to wreck all of this because of their sin and disobedience. As we'll see starting in chapter 4, they have an uncanny ability, them and all of their descendants after them, to continue to sin in ever more egregious ways, and they don't even really have to give it much thought or effort. It just comes very natural to them and very natural to us. What they will never find, however, is the ability to correct the wrongs that they have committed. How is that going to be made right? God promises to do it. God promises here 
in a way that can't fully be understood or appreciated, that there will be a seed, a descendant from the woman who will strike a blow to the serpent's head, to evil, to sin, to rebellion. A serpent killer is going to come, and he's going to stomp him, and he's going to make the garden and all of creation right again. Paul says in Galatians that the seed that we begin to trace through Genesis that goes from Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, that the seed that all these promises have been made for is actually Christ. Christ is the seed, is the descendant of the woman who will crush the serpent, who will make right everything that we have made wrong. And the only hope that we have that that will take place is because God has promised to make it so. I can't help God along in that endeavor. All I do is wreck it. Along with the promise that God will make this right, what we have wrecked, through our sin and disobedience, look a little bit further down in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. It's an odd little aside, isn't it? Just kind of thrown in there randomly. What do Adam and Eve do in 3, 1 through 7 when they sin and when their eyes are open to know their shame and guilt? What do they do? What do they cover themselves with? Fig leaves. It's pretty pitiful. God comes. He listens to their deflecting, their blame-shifting. He looks and sees and knows the mess that they have made. He not only promises to make all of this right according to His plan and in His timing, He also, in the meantime, provides for them the covering for their shame that they could not create for themselves. I don't care how hard you try to make good on your messes. I don't care how hard you try to hide your sin and your guilt and your shame, you will never, ever, ever be able to do it. The only way that you can have yourself clothed and your shame covered is for God to clothe you Himself. And that's why over and over and over again in the New Testament, Paul is exhorting the church, the people of God, to put on Christ. You don't have any righteousness that you can cover yourself with, but Christ has all the righteousness that you need, and He will give you righteous garments and clothing that will completely cover and remove your shame. That does not come cheap. This appears to be, this clothing with the skins appears to be the first mention of death that we have in Genesis. Because in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed with animal skins, animals had to die. Even that 
is a sign of God's mercy. The people who should be dying are the ones who don't, and a substitute is killed in their place so that they can be clothed. The ones who should die for sin and rebellion and disobedience are not the ones who die. Rather, it's the perfect Son of God who dies in our place. And then He clothes us with His righteousness because we could never hope to clothe ourselves. If you're here this morning, and as you hear the way that God approaches sinful, rebellious people, and if you know full well what it means to run and to hide from Him rather than to approach Him to find forgiveness and mercy and grace, you may want to ask yourself whether or not you truly know Him. You may run from God in your sin because you truly don't know Him as your Father who loves you and who has forgiven you through the work of His Son. If that's you, when this service is over, hang tight. Don't leave. Stay here. When everyone has, has left and gone, I'll stay as long as necessary to talk with you about that. If you know God is your Father, He is no longer a judge to you, but He is a merciful, forgiving Father, you may need to ask yourself and evaluate, am I acting as one who has the spirit of adoption, who has been made right with my Creator, King, and Father? Or am I beginning to drift back into old habits an old sinful nature that begins to view God not as a father but as a judge, where I flee from God rather than run to Him to find pardon and forgiveness and restitution. If that's you, one of the best things that you can do, several things you can do. One, you need to get with other Christians, and you need to have people that you can share with the joys of what it means to be forgiven by God in Christ. That, that kind of sharing has a way of stoking these spiritual fires so that you come to love the things of God more than what you would if you were just left on your own to your own devices. You need to get in the Word more. You need to say, I am not going to think about God in the way that seems right to me, I'm going to let God speak for Himself, and He has done that through His Word. And so whatever God has said of Himself is what I will believe concerning Him. And then in faith, knowing that God cannot lie, you approach God on His terms and say, you yourself have said that you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. I want to know it, and I want to live in it. Either way, know that even as a holy God comes and confronts sin and judges and disciplines, He remains merciful and kind if you would take advantage of it. There is mercy even in judgment. Let's pray. Father, how undeserving we are of any kindness that is ours. We are conceived in sin. We add to the guilt that we have inherited from our forefathers. 
our own personal guilt in the individual decisions and actions that we make. Rather than drawing another breath or having another heartbeat, we deserve, if we were to be judged on our own account, we deserve to be snuffed out to be judged eternally. And yet because of your mercy and grace, even as we were running from you, even as we were hiding and deceiving ourselves, you sent your son to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be redeemed and reconciled and adopted into your family. What grace. Help us to see you in the fullness of your goodness and mercy so that even in our moments and times of sin, we would be encouraged to run to you and to find the grace and mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 In response to uh, God's word that we just heard and his glory, let's stand and give him all the glory today for what he's done and what he's going to continue to do.